Welcome back to Supreme Myths. This is actually the final Supreme Myths of the 2022 year. And I can think of no better way of ending this year with my guest, um, someone I've admired for a long time, Sarah Posner. Um, she's a journalist and an author. Because this is my podcast, I have to improvise and say no relation to Judge Posner, who I do mention once a podcast. So um, I want to be clear, there's no relationship, there's no blood relationship there. Um, Sarah's work has appeared in The Nation, Salon, The Atlantic, Washington Post. She's a columnist for MSNBC. She's the author of two great books. Her first book, God's Prophets, Faith, Fraud, and the Republican Crusade for Values Voters. That's 2008. And a recent book, uh, which I loved, called, which I read carefully uh, a few months ago, Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists um, Powered, um, sorry, uh, powered the Trump presidency and the devastating legacy they left behind. That's a great title. Um, and anybody listening will know that from the, those titles, what we're here to talk about today. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. All right. So we're going to talk about the white evangelical Christian nationalist movement. Now, there's some current events about this and the Supreme Court, which we will get to. But before we get to the current events, I think it's important to go back kind of trace the history of this before we get to modern day. So my first question is, and I ask this pretty much everybody, how did you get interested in this subject of white Christian nationalism? Well, when I was a young college student in the mid-1980s, sorry to date myself here, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I was very interested in what was uh, behind, what were the political forces behind Ronald Reagan's presidency, because I was a young feminist college student, and I had been raised in a very liberal household, grew up in a college town, was very surprised by this uh, resurgence of, um, and this growth of the religious right. And so I began studying it when I was in college. I wrote my senior thesis about it. And then I ended up going to law school and practicing law for nine years before I became a journalist. Uh, and so when I did become a journalist, I tapped back into that time in my life and the knowledge that I gained at that time in my life um, and began reporting on the religious right during George W. Bush's presidency. And, and do you mind if I ask you, and feel free to duck this question in every way, um, was there something personal about this? A lot of people I talk to who write books, you know, there's something personal going on as well as professional. I think I have some personal things about the Supreme Court that infect my professional evaluation of it. Was there anything personal or was this just purely kind of a, an academic and, and, and a journalist interest? Yeah. I mean, I think that from a very young age, I was kind of a political junkie, mm -hmm. very interested in politics. And I think the thing that interested me the most about politics was why people were drawn to right-wing ideas and right-wing leadership figures. Okay. So that's, that's, that's great. Let, let's go back now in our little time machine uh, to the 1970s. But I want to take us to one specific moment in the 70s, um, and, and then we'll go on from there. There was a moment of time several years after Roe versus Wade when Jerry Falwell, and for the young people listening, I think he was the king of the white Christian nationalists of the 1970s, or at least the one who probably made the most money or among those who made the most money. Um, when he was asked about Roe, and I'm talking mid-70s here, years afterwards, and he said, yeah, I don't care. Not a big issue for me. Not a big issue for us. It's a hard issue. I had that right, right? Right. In the early to mid-1970s, most evangelicals and fundamentalists were not very interested in Roe. Roe was largely an issue for conservative Catholics mm -hmm. who had opposed abortion before Roe was sure. decided. Um, and there were evangelicals who were also opposed to Roe. It was not an issue that they organized politically around. And that, um, and, sorry, I'm sorry. Finish. Yeah, and, 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 and Falwell was one of those people for whom it was not at the top of his agenda. Later, he made it seem like it was at the top of his agenda at the time, yes. but at the time it yes. was not. And what changed? What changed? Um, well, I think that they saw that, well, first of all, the thing that really drew fundamentalists and evangelicals into the religious right in the early stages was 
issues around church-state separation and, um, and school desegregation. So a lot of what drove them initially was issues around public education mm -hmm. and the democratic small d aspects around public education, like church-state separation. Sir, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I just, last time I'll interrupt you, I, 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 I promise. I just, that's so fascinating because my friend Corinna Lane at Richmond has written, and this always surprises everybody who doesn't know this already. You probably know it already. By, by political science, sociology, non-law standards uh, about the American public, the most controversial cases in American history were not Roe, not Citizens United, not, it was the school prayer cases of the early 1960s that said no mm -hmm. prayer in school. Um, so mm -hmm. what you're saying is, I'm sorry to interrupt, just totally consistent with that. Right. So, uh, well, they were also dismayed by school desegregation. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Jerry Falwell himself was uh, an opponent of the civil rights movement. He, uh, he, uh, negatively portrayed Martin Luther King Jr. as a, you know, a communist agent. Right. Uh, you know, he was all in with that sort of racist, right. um, that racist ideology. Um, but what really got uh, evangelicals and fundamentalists energized in this period was when the federal government started uh, trying to get private schools in the same bucket with public schools with regard to desegregation. So the uh, the IRS's revocation of Bob Jones University's tax exempt status because of its uh, racist, you know, uh, policy against interracial dating on campus was a real lightning rod and inflection point. But also, when the IRS tried to regulate the admissions policies of Christian schools to ensure that they were actually desegregating like the public schools were, and that was really the the lightning rod that drew a lot of them in. And it was really another minister, not Falwell, who did all the legwork on that. This man named Bob Billings, uh, who served in the education department under Reagan, um, after all of his work in getting evangelicals and fundamentalists on board with opposing right. the big bad government, getting involved in these good Christian schools uh, policies. So you see a lot of that still reverberating today uh, when they freak out that uh, Obergefell is going to cause the tax revocation of universities and private schools who oppose same-sex marriage. Um, they have not let go of this idea that the government in today's parlance is uh, implementing this woke agenda and is going to um, persecute Christians by doing that. Certainly Justice Alito believes that. Um, Sarah, before we get to abortion and how Reagan and Meese used that, what you just said about public and private schools, many people listening to this who are younger than, definitely younger than I am, and some even younger than you are, um, don't really, I think, appreciate the context of what was happening. Brown is 54, but there's mm -hmm. no segregation in the South for 10 years. In 1963, the South is 98.2% segregated. Brown didn't work. And then the federal government got involved with giving money to the states, but tying it to formal, to repeal of those formal segregation laws. At the same time, in 1963 and four, all these private schools start opening up. And that's what causes white flight. And that's why the evangelicals got so upset because they needed those schools to, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, to, to, to be a, a source of white flight so that their children would not get a desegregated public school education. And we frankly have a lot of those issues still today. Yes. Um, you know, for the evangelicals, I think it was a combination of the school prayer cases and desegregation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were Christian schools that weren't segregation academies. The segregation academies were uh, schools that were founded explicitly so that white kids didn't have to go to school with black kids. Right. There were also, and they got their tax exemptions revoked, but there were these Christian schools that didn't have that explicit founding statement, but were nonetheless basically segregated. And so what the IRS was trying to do was to create incentives for them to become less segregated, you know, recruiting minority teachers, um, engaging in uh, 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 
extracurricular activities and sports with, you know, other schools with large minority populations, things like that. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't heavy handed. It wasn't quotas as they claimed it was. Right. Um, but when you look back on this history, you can see the laying of the groundwork of a lot of the disputes we're having today or a lot of the culture war battles that are being fought by the right. Woke ideology, quotas, affirmative action, um, you know, uh, uh, the government persecuting Christians, that sort of thing. I mean, all of that is rooted in a lot of the stuff that was going on in the 70s. When you said the IRS was trying to incentivize or get private schools not to do this, I think, again, tell me if I'm wrong, that's the IRS pre-Reagan. The, yes. the Reagan IRS had a very different perspective on all this. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the and then the IRS abandoned those efforts. Yes. So the notion and, and Reagan restored uh, some of the tax exempt, exemptions that were taken right. away. Um, even though the Supreme Court ruled against Bob Jones, Reagan had restored their tax exemption. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the, but, but I think this IRS thing has really fueled this idea in the mind of religious right activists that the government is coming to get them. Right, exactly. Okay. So, now, we're in the mid to late 70s, and Ronald Reagan's running for president. And I'm going to oversimplify it horrifically, and then you fill in the details. My understanding is basically Ed Meese, who was part of his campaign, and before, long before he was Attorney General of the United States, et cetera, um, effectively recruited, I'm overstating this, effectively, or maybe I'm not, effectively recruited the religious right and the evangelicals, the Christian evangelicals, to come into the fold be a part of the Republican Party. He promised them power. And he did all of that, or most of that, on the back of abortion, the issue of abortion. Tell me if I overstated that. Well, I think the person who was more instrumental in all of this was Paul Weyrich. Yes. Okay. Um, who himself was an anti-abortion Catholic, um, who really sort of saw demographically or crunching the numbers that he really needed to bring other Christians on board with this idea of having this right-wing Christian bloc in Republican politics. Otherwise, just the numbers weren't going to be there. Uh, and he was the one who really supported Billings in the crusade against the IRS over the tax exemptions. Um, and he worked very hard to get Falwell to found the moral majority. And, you know, Billings was the first executive director of the moral majority Tell people what the, tell, 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 the define the you, uh, tell people what moral majority means because to my great chagrin, I found that my students and my kids don't know what that phrase even means. So go ahead and so, tell. So the moral majority was an organization that was founded by Falwell and Billings in 1979 in the run up to Reagan's first you know election in 1980. Um, the idea was that the the uh, feminist movement and women's rights and uh, all this other stuff that was happening that they didn't like in the culture, uh, they were not really the majority. The majority of the nation were really these, you know, God-fearing, Bible-thumping Christians, and they were the ones who had the, you know, the moral values in place. Was Phyllis Shafley um, part of all that? Yeah. So, you know, there were different groups. I think the moral majority, because of the phrase, it became kind of the shorthand, even though it was the name of the organization, it became the shorthand for the movement as a whole. Um, but there were other organizations, uh, involved in it and other organizations that formed as a, as a result of, of, of it. So, you know, you have the Heritage Foundation, you have Phyllis Schlafly, who preceded all of this. Her activism was really rooted in opposing the Equal Rights Amendment, right. the feminist movement, right? right? right. Um, and you have the Heritage Foundation, you have new organizations like uh, Concerned Women for America. Uh, and so all these new organizations pop up and they, and they work with churches and televangelists, which, you know, were relatively new at that point because religious television didn't really start till like the late 60s, early 70s. Right. Uh, and so they work together with all of these religious organizations and they come together in this alliance that people thought maybe wasn't going to be possible because of theological differences and in some cases animosity between Catholics and Protestants um, or Catholics and Baptists, but they come together with this idea that they're going to beat back this secular left, secular humanism was really the catchphrase at the time, or women's libbers or the homosexual agenda. Right. They all shared 
opposition to all of these things. And it's, you know, if you were to put it in today's basket, they're talking about the same thing when they talk about the woke agenda. It's really the same thing. And so they agreed basically to overlook their differences, theological and otherwise, between each other to form this alliance, make an alliance with the Republican Party, and then they could dominate politics. You just send a shiver down my spine because, uh, because and this is so painful to even say this out loud, um, Justice Scalia, the now past racist, sexist, homophobe, actually used the phrase homosexual agenda way later, right? Decades later um, in one of his dissents. I think it was Lawrence. Don't hold me to that. It may have been Romer, whichever case right. it was. And right. do you think he was act when he used the, he used that phrase, homosexual agenda? Do you think that was kind of a, 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 ra a radiation from years gone past? I think that uh, it was such a commonly used phrase uh -huh. uh, in the religious right that anybody who had been in contact with the religious right in any way, which I'm sure Justice Scalia was, uh, would have encountered it as the title of a book, um, as a phrase used to disparage LGBTQ right. people. Right. Uh, you know, it was common. Okay, that that makes me so sad. Anyway, um, okay, so I never knew that before. I mean, I, I didn't know that phrase was was kind of a, not a term of art, but you know, it was a very specific phrase. Yeah, when, yes. yeah, that makes Scalia using it even worse. I wish I'd known that before I wrote my five articles about what a sexist, racist, homophobia was. Anyway, um, so um, okay, so Reagan wins in a landslide. I think we can agree that there was a lot of factors for that. There wasn't one thing for that. The Iran hostages were a big part of it. Inflation being like at a zillion percent, not Jimmy Carter's fault, but still was a big part of it. And then we had this merging of the Republican Party with white Christian evangelicals. Just one last footnote here. Jimmy Carter, a born again Baptist. Is that right? Uh, monogamous, no divorces, all that stuff gets destroyed by a divorced Hollywood actor who signed the most the most uh, the strongest pro-choice bill ever uh, at the time in California. The Reagan guy beats the Carter guy because evangelicals come into the fold. We have issues with this, do we not? <laughs> well, I mean, it shows you just how much the, the religious right is about politics and not about religion because they reject the ordained Southern Baptist minister right. uh, in favor of the Hollywood actor. Right. Right. I mean, right. we're going to see an echo of that, you know, later when Trump gets elected. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's really a, more about the candidates uh, adherence to their overall ideology or willingness to appoint them to to uh, the bench or to political appointments within their administration or, you know, basically to do their bidding than it is about the person's actual religious belief. But I think in, in the case of Carter and in the case of other, you know, uh, religious uh, but liberal public figures, Nancy Pelosi, for example, you know, a practicing yeah. Catholic, yeah. Um, you know, the, the, it, there's these litmus tests oh, you're, you know, for abortion rights? Well, then you're not a real Catholic or you're for this or for that. And right. so it's really political litmus tests that define their support or lack thereof. The question that's went through my head, rhetorical question is, is all religion politics? Anyway, um, strike that. Um, okay. Um, so we're in the 19, early 1980s. We're just going to go straight chronologically. here. Um, okay. My understanding is that when so Ronald Reagan, for those who don't remember, said he was going to appoint the first woman to the Supreme Court. Um, I, 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 I like that idea. I'm glad he said that. I mean, it was time to have a woman on the Supreme Court. Of course, in 1981 or two, there were very few women who had the credentials to do that because they were discriminated against throughout the 60s, 70s. You know. uh, Sandra right. Day O'Connor, through sheer force of personality, I think, and intelligence and other things, you know, was someone who had a resume. At least you went to Stanford Law School. Um, if nothing mm -hmm. else, um, he appoints her. And my understanding is the religious right went crazy and were so angry. They, in fact, demanded a meeting either with Meese or Reagan, I forget who, in the White House because they didn't think she was, and to not to be true, they didn't think she was going to be a reliable vote on abortion. Is that all about right? Well, you know, I actually don't know that much about the history with their okay. uh, 
uh, with Senator O'Connor. What I know more about is how they supported Bork's right. nomination. Right. Um, and how the failure of his nomination really spurred, I think, you know, when you look at the history there, it's quite clear that the failure of his nomination to the Supreme Court spurred the movement that we're seeing the fruits of now. Right. The movement to cultivate and recruit and, conf- and nominate and confirm right-wing judges to the Supreme Court. What's fascinating about that to me, and, and this is going to be a counterfactual, and since this is my podcast, I do actually, it turns out, I get to mention Judge Posner one time. Um, he hated counterfactuals, so he would have been mad at me for asking you this question. But nevertheless, um, if Bork gets the nomination, or even forget Bork for a minute, if Judge Ginsburg, not Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but the other Judge Ginsburg, right. who right. smoked pot at Harvard, otherwise he'd be on the Supreme Court. Right. If, if he hadn't smoked pot as a law professor and gets the nomination, then Roe is overturned in 1992. There's no question about that. Hmm. And I guess my counterfactual, so if either Bork or Ginsburg gets on and Kennedy does not, then Roe gets okay. reversed. I think it's that, that I'm confident saying. That being the case, would the history of this movement be different had that occurred? Like, like would the, if, the, if Roe had been overturned in, in, in 92 instead of 30 years later, you, would we be sitting here today with a less, what you and I consider to be, I'm not going to try to be objective about this, very dangerous, very bad for America, political movement known as white Christian nationalism. Could that maybe have headed it off? Well, if Roe had been overturned in the 90s, mm-hmm. just accepting your counterfactual, yeah. which, you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> um, but, uh, abortion still would have been uh, legal in some states. True. So I think that there definitely would have been a movement to make it illegal everywhere. Okay. Right. So if Roe had been overturned, states would have been free to yeah. uh, keep it legal. Right. There probably would have been a movement to uh, criminalize it nationwide, perhaps, yeah. or state by state okay. criminalize it. Fair enough. So it maybe would have looked different, but I don't think the um, other efforts would have looked that different, the anti-LGBTQ stuff, and even maybe even the, um, I mean, maybe the anti-contraception stuff would have been more intense because Roe had already been overturned and maybe they would have aimed for overturning Griswold. Right. That's a scary thought, but that's a great, that's a great answer to my bad question. Thank you. Um, (laughs) So we go through the eighties. There is definitely this alliance between the Reagan administration and white Christian evangelicals. Well, it's all it's a it's a Catholic and and evangelical okay coalition. Fair yeah. Enough. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. How much was that? How much did that influence the Bush president? So I, I worked for the Department of Justice from 80, 88 to ninety one. Those okay. were three years where, where the first Bush was president. I had I was lucky to get a bunch of high profile cases, um, other than abortion, which I had told them I wouldn't work on anyway. Um, other than abortion cases. I didn't see a huge evangelical influence. Now, Mary's didn't see it from 88 to 92. It, it seemed like what I, what I had heard was, was wor- I, again, I'm not being objective here, was worse than what I encountered, even on some very high-profile political cases that I worked on. But you tell me, was there a big influence in the first Bush administration with white evangelicals? There, were, there was an effort mm-hmm. to, but you know, in the for- folklore of the religious right, I think George H. W. Bush is unquestionably the least yes. popular. That's what I was uh, trying to say. Thank you. Yes. Like least remembered. Yes. But I think the important thing to know about George H. W. Bush is even as he resisted pandering to evangelicals, he still was aware that there were people around him who really thought that he should do it. So he had this religious advisor named Doug Weed. Um, who recently died, but um, had been, you know, a, a very, you know, pretty well-known political operative in the Republican Party. And he was advising Bush, and he later advised George W. Bush. But he wrote this uh, massive memo for George H. W. Bush in 1987 when he was running for president, um, a thousand targets, and it was like this very detailed 
list of religious leaders around the country. There was a top 10, then there was like sort of like the B list, C list, et cetera. And his advice to Bush was like, you really need to reach out to these people, even if it's just kind of like a photo op in the Oval Office and, you know, not a lot of cameras there, but just like maybe a few cameras there for the right audience. Um, And so we'd really started to lay the groundwork of expanding out um, the Republican Party's outreach to um, evangelicals and and to a certain extent Catholics um, and other you know right wing Christians as a as a means for getting elected and in his mind too getting um, getting their policy agenda enacted. Right. And so he, I think we'd really start to lay that groundwork. I think George H. W. Bush was uneasy with it. Um, And sort of like not comfortable in that world. That wasn't his world. He was sort of like a mainline Protestant through and through. Yes. Um, But then by the time you get to George W. Bush, the embrace of those ideas. uh, We'll get there in a second. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So that that was my impression that that, that George H.W. Bush kind of politically sensed he had to have some dealings with these people. It wasn't his first choice for breakfast. I think that's. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, Then we get Clinton for eight years. And 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 people don't remember this probably, but somewhere in sometime come mid nineties or late nineties, the second most powerful man in America, probably politically, is Newt Gingrich. Um, where was Newt in this context? Well, I think that you know people understand now that we got Trump because there was this enormous backlash to Obama, yes. right? So we had yes. the first black president. Yes. And there was this huge white backlash yes. against that. And people don't think about it as much with regard to Clinton, and that's how we got Bush. But the religious right was extremely activated during the Clinton presidency. Um, All the conspiracy theories, you know, who killed Vincent Foster, uh, you know, Whitewater, Monica Lewinsky. The religious right was right at the center of all that. Jerry Falwell distributed this crazy videotape uh, that was just like this, you know, just a hodgepodge of conspiracy theories about Clinton. Right. And so the religious right is very engaged on this. And if you wonder, if you ever wonder where QAnon came from, all you have to do is look at how evangelicals reacted to the Clinton era. The idea that the government was populated with pedophiles in some, you know, secret corridors (laughs) in Washington, you know, underground in Washington, D.C. was something that was very commonly talked about and disseminated in religious right circles. And it was just part of this anti-Clinton backlash. Again, another fellow traveler, Southern, you know, evangelical, Southern Baptist, Bill Clinton, um, but he didn't pass all of their litmus tests. Um, So I think an understanding of the evangelical rights role in the anti-Clinton movement and impeachment um, is very important to understand, not just, you know, for the history in general, but for understanding how we got where we are now. That, that's fascinating. And just I'm just I know you didn't mean to duck it, but because I, I'm from Georgia and I think Gingrich tweeted out yesterday or two days ago or whenever we, the, the last election was that when Warnock won, that he's moving out of Georgia right. because it's no longer a Democrat state or something. I don't know. But people really don't remember how powerful he was a Speaker of the House and he was incredibly yes. powerful in the 90s. I don't know what his role, if any, was in this white Christian evangelical movement. Oh, he's very, he's very connected with them. Okay. You know, I have uh, boxes full of pamphlets and ephemera from various periods of the religious right. Right. Um, And I remember, you know, I have things from very early stages where he was like a featured speaker. So he was very, he was very enmeshed. Was he divorced Um, three times by then too? (laughs) Maybe. Why? I can't remember. They just don't care who they align with. They don't care. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, he, you know, when I think about the period, uh, you know, throughout the 2000s, when I started uh, reporting on this stuff, he's, you know, he was always a speaker at things like Values Voter Summit or, um, you know, Ralph Reed's little confab in D.C. or that used to be in D.C. Now he has it somewhere else. Um, So, you know, speaking of Georgia, (laughs) people like, you know, another Georgian who was very key figure in the religious right is, is Ralph Reed. Right. So, Sarah, I've got to tell you, I'm sorry, you may, you may have seen these tweets. I think you did. But since you bring up Ralph Reed, we're going to improvise a little bit yet again. I was in an airport a few months ago, and I'm waiting in line with my wife. And there's this well-dressed, obviously, you know, well-put-together guy who is yelling at the phone about some Supreme Court thing that he was just 100% wrong about. I forget what it was, but he was 100% wrong. And, 
and I, I, my fault, my bad. I, I didn't know who it was. I take full responsibility for how rude this was. But as we're walking by, I said, that's not right. <laughs> that's not what happened. And he yells at me, yes, it was. And we have a little two minute, he puts the phone down. We fight for two minutes. I had no idea who it was. It was my bad. I shouldn't have done it. I apologize to the world. We then go on to the, to the TSA pre-line. And there's this woman standing there. And she says to my wife, your husband was just screaming at my husband. And, I, and she said, well, I don't think he was screaming at him, but he was, my husband teaches constitutional law and what your husband was saying, my husband thought was incorrect. This woman couldn't have been nicer. And she said, well, you know, that's Ralph Reed. <laughs> and so I had my own little battle with Ralph Reed in the airport, not knowing it was Ralph Reed. It was quite a thing. He was- Were whatever, you on the same flight? Uh, not the same flight, thank goodness. No. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Um, all right, so we, we get past the Clinton years. Um, and now you said a few minutes ago that, as opposed to his father, George W. Bush absolutely aligned himself in every, strategically, politically, you didn't say this, I'm saying it, politically in every way with the religious right. How did that, how did that happen? Well, you know, part of it was uh, Weed's intervention. You know, mm -hmm. he came back to George W. Bush like he did with his father, you know, with advice about who to, who to reach out to and, you know, had people like Kenneth Copeland, who's a very... Uh, notorious televangelists like send him a book, you know, things right. like that. But, you know, remember, George W. Bush is an evangelical himself. He's a born again Christian, too. So it's more comfortable for him. Right. Um, and, you know, more significantly is how he got reelected during the election when they had all of the same sex marriage bans on the ballot. Mm -hmm. um, and that really, you know, energized evangelicals to the polls um, and helped pass all of those and get him reelected. Well, they're really good at it, aren't they? All right. Anyway, um, so does Bush put in a lot of events? So we're going to eventually and later talk about in a few minutes, talk about Trump and how he put into the government all of these evangelicals. Did Bush do that too? He did. Okay. Yes. Um, and you remember it was during the Bush presidency that there was the controversy at DOJ because there was the Regent University Law School graduate who was screening job right. applicants for right. their, you know, ideological uh, right. conformity. Right. Uh, so, yes, uh, it wasn't as, how do I put this, you know, Trump was less quiet about it. Let's put it that way. Yes. You know, Trump yes. put in place people who were very loud and ostentatious and drew right. a lot of attention for things that they had said or done. Whereas I think during the Bush era, there was just more of an effort to be uh, a little bit more discreet about it. So, but, so, you know, there were abstinence only people installed at HHS, things right. like that. So, so, yeah. so, so, so one of the questions, maybe two of the questions about that. So during the, the second Bush presidency, I think it's 2001 um, or 2002, maybe. I think it's one. He creates this thing. The sound of it sends shivers down my back. The Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. I'm, I'm going to say yeah. it again so people hear it. It's a, it's a taxpayer-funded Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. What was it really? <laughs> well, really the thing was that each federal agency um, had uh, had an office of faith-based initiatives inside of it. Right. So there was the White House Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, right. which basically was, you know, photo ops and meetings and handshaking and that sort of thing. But what was going on inside the agencies was not particularly transparent, um, you know, when there were faith-based organizations that were getting federal contracts and grants and that sort of thing. And I think to this day, there's not a lot of transparency about what, what went on during the Bush era, era or even during the um, Obama era. One of the things, one of the problems with that is that the way of, of finding out who got contract, there's no way of sorting who got or filtering who got right. contracts that were faith-based organizations and, and why, why they got the contracts. Um, but, you know, I mean, the office still exists. Obama kept it in place under another name, and so did Biden, and Trump did, obviously, too. Well, that's scary. For, for people wondering, the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, which did a lot of substantive stuff in, in, inside the agencies, like you say, was challenged by um, 
Freedom from Religion, Inc. And the Supreme Court said that they didn't have standing um, to challenge it on the basis. It's too complicated a basis to go into. But trust me, right. it's frivolous and absurd and ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. But it, it does sadden me a little bit that Obama and Biden have kept it on. Um, okay. So the second question. We'll do a whole podcast on that. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, we could. <laughs> yes. So, I could spend six hours with you. Unfortunately, about 25 minutes left. Um, second question about just Bush, and then we'll get to Trump. Second question about Bush. Um, I think there were people in his administration, second Bush, that felt very strongly about contraception. Forget abortion, contraception. And I think they were muddling like some public policy type things, not that wouldn't be necessarily in violation of Griswold, but would seriously make contraception harder to get for everybody. Am I, and I assume that's an evangelical inspired thing. Well, what I remember from that era was how much they were trying to press uh, abstinence only sex education. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, is harmful to teenagers. Has never worked in the history of time. Ineffective, right? <laughs> um, anyone who's been a teenager yes. knows this, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, in the context of that, um, they obviously were not uh, supporting. Uh, the use of contraception right. because they were supporting, you know, trying to get people to just not have sex at all. Um, unbelievable. So, it's unbelievable, really, if you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think that, um, you know, for people who were surprised after Dobbs that we were even talking about is contraception in danger, um, you know, the there has been kind of a long, a longer attack on contraception, which has sort of flown under the radar a little bit just right. because um, people were more for, focused on abortion. See, if they had overturned Roe under your a counterfactual, right. then we probably yes. would have been talking more about this. You know, I, I just, this is off the cuff, but I I just never met a religi a non-religious person who had a problem with contraception. The only people of contraception are people of faith. It's I'm, I mean, I'm not talking about strategies to get your teenagers not to have sex. I'm talking about in general. To be opposed to contraception just I, uh, doesn't matter. Anyway, um, so we're going to get to the Trump years, but we can't actually do that. And this is what I found, one of the 10 things I found amazing about your book, your second book. Um, the Trump years really begin in 2011, 12, 13 in some very serious ways. And the alliance, the, the, potent, the future alliance of evangelicals with Trump, which one would think in a vacuum would be insanity because he's at least moral, least faith. And they knew all that. It really begins in 11, 12, and 13, right? Can you tell that mm -hmm. part of the story? I'm going to shut up for a few minutes now, I promise, because this is a great part of the story. Well, so uh, Trump starts uh, feeling out the possibility of a presidential run in 2011. Right. Um, running as a Republican um, with the thought that he'd run in 2012. Well, obviously that didn't happen, but he starts to lay the kind of lay the groundwork for maybe running as a Republican at some point down the road. And he does that by explicitly reaching out to evangelicals and using Christian media to reach that kind of audience. Um, he's known Paula White uh, for a number of years. She's a televangelist who became yep. his top spiritual advisor in the White House. So he kind of knows this world. Um, he makes an appearance on the Christian Broadcasting Network where he talks about how terrible the Quran is and, and uh, Islam, how terrible Islam is and they're out to get us and all of that. And he launches his, you know, racist birther campaign against Barack Obama. These are all things that are designed to kind of like plant seeds with evangelical voters, right? Um, uh, you know, he starts to change his tune on abortion. Not that he talked that much about abortion before, like, you know, being pro-choice. There, there is so a clip of him saying he's pro-choice, though. There is a clip somewhere of him saying right. he's pro-choice. But it wasn't like he spent every day yeah, going yeah, out, you yeah. know, being an advocate for abortion uh, yeah. choice. Uh, but, you know, so he starts laying all this groundwork. He goes on the Christian Broadcasting Network. Um, there are uh, people uh, who, who follow his interview on the Christian Broadcasting Network segment, like Kellyanne Conway, you know, who's a very respected pollster in this uh, conservative world, you know, talking about, you know, the ways he could, you know, potentially appeal to evangelical voters. And so he's basically using these interviews on the Christian Broadcasting Network to both reach evangelical voters and get coaching about how to reach evangelical right. voters. Right. I, I, think his friendship, um, I think his friendship with Hannity started around that time, too. Right. And so, uh, you know, so he's he's laid the groundwork there. 
And I think the birther thing is more important than people huh. people think in retrospect, because you know, white evangelicals, and this is this is polling data, right? White evangelicals are like a more Islamophobic than other demographics. Right. Right. And they're more likely to like have learned about what they think they know about Islam from like Fox News and that sort of thing. So the Islamophobia kind of runs high. So like, you know, calling him Barack Hussein Obama, saying that he was, you know, maybe born in this Muslim country and is this scary foreigner. Um, and, you know, not to mention the racism that underlay their opposition to the Obama presidency in general. So you have all of this combining to have him kind of be um, be there. And I think that, you know, his announcement speech where he comes down the escalator in Trump Tower. I mean, I've written about this before. You know, he's the televangelism president, right? He has this history as a quote unquote successful businessman, the gilded penthouse in Manhattan, all of that. These are things that really appeal to evangelicals and charismatics and Pentecostals who subscribe to the prosperity gospel, right? Like they believe that you are rich, people who are rich, they're rich because God wanted them to be rich and that they, you know, and God blessed them. No, Sarah, hold on, so hold on. I did not know that. And you, and I, I'm guessing most of my audience doesn't either. Um, no, I didn't know that. And that's, that's, that's super. I, I, I never thought of that before. I always assumed because many evangelicals are in the middle of the country, and not particularly well off. I've always wondered why would they? Why would this New York real estate alleged billionaire? He's not, but alleged billionaire with the gold bathrooms appeal to them. I never, that never made sense to me. You're saying that it's their view that if you if you live that life, kind of God wanted you to, even if you're a sinner right. of the worst kind. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of Nuance. excuse yeah. making, yeah. right? Um, you know, there were a lot, there was a lot of excuse making for for Trump all along. Yeah the way here. Um, but yeah, so I think that for a lot of these voters who go to a prosperity gospel and, you know, I think it's, you know, a lot of evangelicals are not poor, you know, they okay. are well off or solidly middle-class or solidly okay. middle upper, upper middle-class. Um, but if you believe in the prosperity gospel that you think that, you know, if you express your faithfulness to God, God will bless you with riches. And so they kind of did the reverse with Trump that because he was rich, <laughs> that must mean that God blessed him. But I think that the all of the very ostentatious wealth stuff was a positive, not a negative with voters. Wow. Okay. That, that's something I, okay. Fascinating. I'm almost speechless. Um, that hasn't happened many times in this 83 <laughs> podcast series run. I'll see if I can do it again. Whatever it is. One of the most fascinating things about your second book is when you talk about Putin and Viktor Orban um, of Austria and their connections to the evangelicals in America and eventually maybe even to the Trump campaign. Can you talk about that? Well, while the while the religious right was, you know, trying to overturn same sex marriage and overturn Roe and all of that at home. They're also trying to do that around the world. So they've made a lot of allies. There are organizations that with, um, you know, basically mirror religious right organizations um, in many European countries in Russia um, that have relationships with American religious right organizations, both, you know, Catholic and evangelical. Um, and they share a lot of the same goals and they admire a lot of the same leaders. So all that a leader like Putin or Orban needs to do is talk about, you know, even though neither of them are particularly religious, they don't stand around and quote the Bible, but they talk a lot about the Christian heritage of their country. And that was enough, along with some policy things, to really enamor um, American religious right activists to figures like that. And I think that their anti-democratic moves were not just, a, they weren't excused because of these other things. The anti-democratic moves are part of the appeal. Because to the religious right, democracy means equal rights for everybody, equal rights for women, equal rights for LGBTQ people. Well, that's exactly what they're fighting against. Those are the things they claim are oppressing them as Christians. Um, so, uh, you know, Putin's 
uh, you know, ban on quote gay propaganda. Right. You know, I had a religious right activist tell me once that, you know, he liked the idea, but he didn't think it would pass muster under the First Amendment in the United States. Yeah, these days, who knows? With this, who knows, with right? This <laughs> court. Um, so Trump and so so my understanding is from political scientists is that Trump's announcement of his his formal announcement, I think, of his presidency was at Liberty University, right? Or at least one big, or big, a, a big announcement. We'll leave it there. Was at Liberty University under Jerry Falwell Jr., the son of the aforesaid Jerry Falwell, the now right. you know scandalized Jerry Falwell Jr. I recommend the documentary about him to everybody. It's amazing. You can't even imagine how amazing it is. Um, that was a big moment, wasn't it? Well, well, maybe not. I, <laughs> I think that Jerry Falwell Jr.'s influence as a person is way overstated. Okay. Uh, I think that it's well accepted by Republican presidential candidates that they need to go to Liberty and, and give a speech. Uh, and that's because at Liberty, they have this thing called convocation, which is mandatory for the students. Right. So you're basically speaking to a packed basketball arena filled with 18 to 22 year olds in Virginia, right? Right. Um, so it seems kind of beneficial. I think the broader statement being made um, is, I'm 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 okay with evangelicals. I can I can go talk about two Corinthians, and I I like hanging out with evangelicals, and I love evangelical. Uh, so so you and I both know Trump can't stand any of them. That's the that's the. I mean, I don't know. Okay, I don't know that. But we, so we, so we, I think that it's important in that sense. But I think the role of Jerry, as the endorser of Trump, yeah. is way overstated. Okay, way overstated. Okay, yeah. nice. Yeah, I know you meant you. You do suggest that. Um, so Trump gets elected, and certainly does not get elected without evangelical support. I mean, three states, Correct. three swing Absolutely. states. You know, right. seventy thousand votes. I mean, it's he, no chance, mm -hmm. no chance. Okay, we agree on that. Um, he gets elected, and from your book, what I one of the things I took from it was he really put people. Because he didn't care about government. Obviously, he, you know, Trump cares about Trump and he cares about money and he cares about power and being reelected. Right. So he put in all of these people at HHS and other places who, who really, their agenda was just evangelical down the line, right? Yeah. And they, and, well, you know, it, like, like I said, it's a coalition of uh, right-wing evangelicals and Catholics. So they weren't all evangelicals. Some of them, you know, some of them are Catholic, um, but it's the same political agenda, right? They... Uh, you know, elevate uh, the the right, the quote unquote conscience rights of uh, objecting uh, evangelicals and Catholics um, and minimize or undermine the rights of, you know, women and LGBTQ people. I mean, that's right. like basically the thrust of what they were trying to do at HHS. One of the reasons but, I... Um, one of the reasons but I... But those I, things, those things come and go with presidents, yes, right? The yes. really more significant... Yes. Lasting impact was through his judicial appointments. Of course, as um, you know. Yes, sadly, yes. Um, one of his appointments, uh, his last name is Walker, and I'm blanking on his first name. Um, who's now in the DC Court of Appeals? But while he was a district court judge, Justin Walker. Yeah, he wrote this whole pay-in to Jesus and Christianity in a judicial opinion. Yep. Right after he got to the bench, which was a tryout for the Court of Appeals, and somehow that worked. Yep. That's crazy stuff. Um, but on the, on the less, maybe less sexy kind of sounding policy front, this um, installation of, Catholic, uh, of, of religious conservative Catholics, because there are many, many millions of Catholics who are not conservative, you know, and they're very liberal. But, right, but, absolutely. Yeah, but, of the, uh, but none of those got those jobs. Uh, the, the conservative Catholics and the evangelicals, that really affected the policy of this country for four years. In oh, dramatic absolutely. ways. Can you spout a couple? Well, they uh, tried to reverse uh, a regulation at HHS that barred um, discrimination against transgender people in right. healthcare. Right. Um, they boosted the enforcement of these. Um, they're not actually laws. They're, they're amendments that are appended to the, the you know appropriations laws uh, every year. Um, you know, the Weldon Amendment, the Church Amendment, you know, they're basically these amendments that 
give, you know, healthcare workers the right to say, I, you know, I'm the custodian at this hospital and I don't want to mop the floor in this room where there had been a sterilization procedure performed on a woman earlier today, for example. Jesus. Um, I mean, that's a really extreme example. I mean, but it could, you could read it that way, but right. like mostly it's been people like nurses and so on. Right. They went after the University of Vermont uh, Medical School for now. I'm not even remembering what it was, but it was, you know, deviating from some orthodoxy on this, on these conscience rules. Right. So they had a really heavy hand over there. Um, and, you know, a lot of faith-based, more faith-based organizations got grants from HHS, which, you know, gives out a tremendous number of grants every year because they, they're the agency that helps, you know, provide social services to the public. And they do that not only, you know, directly, right. but also through a lot of contractors and grantees. So, um, you know, I, that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, like that was the sort of stuff that went on. And then as everybody knows, and we, we are... We may have to bring you back in January for part two. I don't know. Um, but um, we might do that. Um, then, as we all know, Leonard Leo, the head of the Federalist Society, executive vice president, but really Ted, goes to sit in the old, office, old executive office building, working directly for the president, and with Don McGahn, put all these religious folks on the lower course, but let's leave that aside. Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett. All three mm -hmm. of them come from Leonard Leo. Right. Mm -hmm. Barrett, I think Gorsuch said he, um, no, Trump said, wait, Trump said he never heard of Gorsuch until Leo told him about him or something like that. Um, but in any event, I may have that quote wrong. So I assume the evangelicals love those three picks. We're, we're behind all three of them. Not maybe Kavanaugh less? Kavanaugh less. Okay. But you know who came to Kavanaugh's defense? Keelan Moore. Justin Walker. Oh, Chris, right. Justin Walker. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... They were very happy about Gorsuch. I mean, Gorsuch had a long record of supporting these very expansive views of religious liberty, right. including his Tenth Circuit decision in Hobby Lobby, right? right. So right. he's a very important figure to them. Right. And Amy Coney Barrett is obviously like this very, uh, you know, just her, just her whole uh, persona, you know, being the working mom of, you know, seven kids and devout Catholic and, you know, all of that. She was very, but I think the, the incident... Uh, with uh, Dan Feinstein really bolstered how the religious right felt about Amy Coney Barrett. So, so that incident was during her confirmation, she asked, she said, the dogma lives strong within you. And the moment she said that, and over the, I, I followed that, I wrote a piece for the New York Times on that. Um, and for the next few days, not for the New York Times, I wrote a piece, the New York Times took it. I, guess I should put that. Um, I, I, I wrote it with Jeff Stone of Chicago, who's one of the great law, you know, First Amendment scholars in the country. Um, but anyway, it, it's important for people to understand, though, Diane Feinstein asked a question that could have been phrased better. Absolutely. Nevertheless, I was shocked at the liberal outpouring of criticism of her by people like Chris Eisenberger, the, the president or chancellor of Princeton, who used to be a very liberal, it was a, and is a liberal and was a liberal law professor, and, and other liberals, famous liberals who said how bad that was, how inappropriate it was. And Jeff and I said in the Times, she put this in play. She wrote a law review article saying, raise a good, law, a good article, a thoughtful article. What should Catholic judges do when their core beliefs, that's not the correct phrase of art, but when their core beliefs interfere with their legal duties? And her answer was, I'm not sure. Yep. So, so why was it so bad that we asked her that question? I don't understand. Right. I mean, I do think that maybe the outcry could have been avoided if Feinstein had phrased it differently, yeah. but I doubt it. Me too. I doubt I mean, it too. I think that she did give the uh, religious right a soundbite that they just missed yes. forever. Yes. You know, they were selling t-shirts that said the dogma lives loudly inside me. Yes. You know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But the amplification of that by liberals, I thought, and Jeff, Jeff Stone yeah. is a liberal from way back. And Jeff and I have completely different views about the court, um, but we agreed on this. I mean, it was just a, a horrific display of of awfulness, I think, by a lot of liberals who... who right. I mean, I think you have to distinguish between being critical or dismissive or derisive of somebody's religion. Sure, of course. And then questioning whether a public figure is going to let their religion rather than the law 
dictate the outcome in these very important cases that come before the court. Which she put into play to begin with because she because she co-wrote, co didn't write, co-wrote an article about it. All right, we're running out of time. Um, how serious a threat do you think, you've written two books about it now, you've studied it for decades, uh, how serious a threat going forward to pe for people who think that we should live in a pluralistic, um, more tolerant society where LGBTQ folks and transgender folks, women um, uh, should be treated equally, should have equality, women should be able to be pro-choice, women should be able to have abortions, but, but gender equality in general, and just a more liberal environment when it comes to non-faith-based activities. Um, how serious a threat do we have going forward here? It's an extremely serious threat, and it's not because these views represent the majority of Americans. It's because we are governed by an anti-majoritarian system. Yeah. So uh, we have two major political parties. One of them is controlled by people who hold these views. Um, that is reflected uh, in the Senate, even though you know the senators representing those views represent a smaller number of Americans than the senators representing the by a lot more liberal side, by right? I lot. mean, like Wyoming has the same number of senators yes. as California. We've yeah. all heard it before. Yeah. Um, and then there's the Electoral College, but then of course there is the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. Um, is Amy Barrett uh, evangelical? No, she is Catholic, but she's also the member of, uh, I would call it like a, a charismatic religious sect, which I think some Catholics consider not to really be Catholic. It's right. ostensibly Catholic, but yeah, right. she comes from a sort of unusual, I would say, um, religious upbringing. Last question. And controversial. Last question, Sarah, and you've been great. Um, so what's the best way to fight this? I've been doing this for a really long time. Yes. <laughs> and I, as well as anybody um, I know, go ahead. Uh, I, I'm constantly amazed when people ask me, well, how can these people be Christian and believe X? Yeah. Okay. And I think you have to understand that there are lots of different kinds of Christians and it's not for me or the government to say, which is the right kind. We just have to accept that the religious right is Christianity. They re represent a kind of Christianity. It's not fake Christianity, it is real. Um, and that they have used power and money and you know the trappings of political power and dark money uh, to really seize an outsized amount of power in our country. And you have to be thinking about it in these kind of political terms as opposed to pondering, well, is it really Christianity? Is it fake Christianity? Because like th those are things that are not going to get us anywhere. We have to confront the political reality head on. And how exactly we do that, you know, people might have different views on it. I think that, the, the you know, we need to work on uh, bolstering democracy and democratic institutions. We need to like get rid of dark money, however that's possible. Um, and, you know, stop worrying about, you know, is this real Christianity or like the religious right is neither like that sort of, uh, right. you know, is, is, is pointless and not useful. That's a great answer. And before we go, you mentioned heritage earlier. Um, I have my own personal demons with heritage um, because I've kind of lost a friendship over it. But um, I just noticed that the president of the Heritage Society met with Viktor Orban last week. Yeah. And. I think, so, so one of my sub answers to the question I asked you would have been, would be, we have to recognize that organizations like Heritage now are not what they were in 1985. Whatever they were in 1985, they're different today. I, I don't think the Heritage, I don't think the Heritage folks, and maybe you can say we're going over, but you can tell me I'm wrong about this. I don't think they meet with Viktor Orban in 1997, or, or Viktor Orban. That's a little because the world was different, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and I think that there were, well, maybe we should save this for another day. Um, but I do think that part of what's happening here is that there's like a, a, a autocratic right, far right yeah. movement that's sort of sweeping the globe. Yeah. Um, and they're getting in on it because they think that they have been convinced 
that this is basically what conservatism is now. I mean, I've seen this develop over the, you know, the past 10 years at like conferences like CPAC and so forth. Right. They believe that Viktor Orban represents conservatism more than Ronald Reagan does. On that? They'll give lip service. They'll give lip yeah. service to Reagan, yeah. right? But, you know, Orban is the model. Gerrymander the crap out of everything so that you can keep winning elections, demonize your political enemies, close down your universities. That's their model. Yeah. Well, on that incredibly depressing note, because I think you're 100% right, thank you so much for being on. I, I, I've learned so much from you. I follow you. Whenever you say something in the public, I, I look at it because I, I know you're on top of these things. For people who care about the threats posed by the religious right, there is no one better to go to than Sarah Posner. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Eric. <laughs>